HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. It is 1 p.m. on Monday afternoon, and that means it is time for Tech Bites. I'm your host, Jennifer Leutzi, and every week on Monday afternoons, we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And that technology is social media, web, and apps, not quite so much immersion circulators, sous vide, and alginates. If you're into that kind of thing, go check out Dave Arnold on his show called Cooking Issues. <laughs> Today in the studio, we have... Lockhart Seal, who is one of the original, original founders of Eater and Curbed Network, which was Eater. Well, first it was Curbed, then it was Eater, and then it was Racked. That's and exactly now right. it's folded into Vox Media. Also correct. Um, and he's going to talk to us today about 10 years in Eater, which is very exciting. The first time I met Locke was actually almost exactly 10 years ago, and we were sitting in the backyard of Five Ninths the little townhouse restaurant in the meatpacking, which is no more. And now 10 years later, we're sitting in the backyard of Roberta's. So it's kind of a nice 10th Five ninth. I love that you remember that. That was that restaurant had a little moment. I mean, I loved that place for and then it changed chefs and then it was gone. But it, there was like it was when it of, first opened, Zach Palacio was the yeah, chef and exactly he was cooking right. all these crazy things. And Dave Wondrich was the cocktail consultant. And he had my, my standard cocktail there was the Paloma. It was amazing. That is a great memory. Yeah, and we sat in the backyard and talked about the blogs and how you just launched your blog. And I just launched a blog. And it was the beginning of, of the blog. I mean, this, yeah, this is crazy. But like this month, July 2015, is, is literally the 10-year anniversary of Eater. We launched it, Ben Leventhal and I. We launched it in July of 2005. So I don't even think we've mentioned this on Eater, which is probably kind of perfect because... If there's one thing we're not at Eater, it's particularly sentimental. Um, but like you <laughs> think, maybe, maybe we should acknowledge it in some way. I'm making like a mental note here to talk to uh, 
Amanda Clute, our editor-in-chief, when I get back to the office this afternoon and say, like, hey, didn't we actually turn 10 last week and kind of space that? (laughs) (laughs) Well... Turning 10 and spacing that, and then I also got a little excited and spaced onto the first thing typically that we do on the show is we talk about apps that we love and apps that we're using because it's kind of, you know, digital and techy, And oftentimes parlays right into food. Do you have an eater app? Or no, so this is actually, you're, you're hitting on a topic, which is a big topic of conversation inside our entire company right now, which is news apps in general have not worked for anybody. I mean, a lot of companies, whether it's the New York Times, whether it's, you know, CNN, a lot of like a lot of people, have, whether it's BuzzFeed, a lot of people have invested in apps. And we had an Eater app for a while, actually, when we were still independent. And what typically happens with apps for news, again, just talk about news here, is that you have 25,000 or 50,000 rabid fans of what you do who download your app. And like, that's great. Then you have 25,000 people using your app. But if you take a site like Eater, Eater has about 10 million unique visitors that come to our website or mobile website every month. And so to create an app and have to sustain an app, and also the way we do different kinds of storytelling on Eater now, we, you know, we do a lot of work with graphical information, we do a lot of data journalism, these things in, you know, have embedded maps, they might have embedded uh, graphs. These are all things that are actually really difficult to support in an app. You have to build it a second time, basically. And so when we got to Vox Media, our company was acquired by Vox in the, at the end of 2013. Um, and all of us, 51 employees from the Curb Network, came over and joined Vox Media. And it's been a great run with those guys so far. Um, I'm now the editorial director of that company, um, overseeing our editors and chiefs on those, those eight media brands that we run. Um, but our, our, our director of product at, at Vox is a guy named Trey Brundett, who thinks, has thought more about the mobile web like, than anyone else on the planet. And his theory was, like, we're not going to do apps at all. In fact, we're going to shut the Eater app down. And what we're going to do is we're going to make sure we have really great responsive websites that load and render perfectly on mobile and perfectly on a tablet. And we're going to assume that, like, we're actually going to create a better reader experience that way. We're going to lose the special, yeah, we're not doing the fan service to those 25,000 hardcores who might have loved the Eater app. But it's actually a better, like, invest in, you know, better decision making around how we invest our technology development dollars. Um, But now we live in this era, right? Uh, This might get too media nerdy, so just cut me (laughs) off when it does. But if you you look at like what Facebook is doing with its instant articles program, for instance, or what Apple is doing now, releasing Apple News as a standalone app, um, Eater is going to be a launch partner on that on that Apple product. Um, And so we've actually been working with Apple over the last month. And what we found is that both Facebook and Apple have good intentions. They both want to speed up the load time for stories on mobile, which is, yeah, they're slow and awful. That's one of the problems of the mobile web. Um, But for those of us who are publishers, it means, again, we're kind of losing our unique ways of storytelling. Like Apple wants stories to be formatted its special way, and Facebook wants stories to be formatted its special way. And if all we're talking about here is a long-form story and it's just words, well, that's okay. But we also do a lot of graphical storytelling, as I said. And we do a lot of special, you know, creative pieces. Like if you look at an Eater heat map or our Eater 38s. Very visual. It's a very visual, very interactive environment. And, like, we can't do that on Apple News. And we can't do that on Facebook Instant Articles. So this is a literally – this this debate is is raging inside our company right now. Because it's it's, if you're into the future of media on the web – the question of how is it going to work on mobile and who's going to control mobile, especially as more and more and more of our readers shift to mobile, Eater's readership is now over 50% mobile. This is the question. It is the question, and you look at it from the side of the producer and the person running the content. On the flip side of that, though, as a user, what do you do? You not use any news apps? Which app 
do you I don't. like right now? What's what? your favorite app, Locke? Uh, Snapchat probably is my favorite app right now. You have figured out how to use it because when we talk about Snapchat, Jack and I can't figure it out. And Declan, our intern, knows how to roll it. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> I mean, you have to put yourself in kind of that, like, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 40s now. I have to put myself in a slightly different mindset. Um, but one of the things that's interesting and in one of the ways I judge, like, we're all, everyone I work with at Eater and everyone at Vox Media, we're all, we're all storytellers. We're all creatives. We all love to, like, you know, do our thing. And Amanda Clute, again, Eater's editor-in-chief, and Bill Addison, who's Eater's roving restaurant critic, who, you know, gets paid to travel around the country and eat amazing food. The three of us did a road trip in early May um, through North Carolina barbecue country. Right. We started at Asheville all the way in the, in the, in the west of the state, drove all the way across. And, and you and, used Snapchat to cover it? Yeah, well, Amanda in particular had gotten really into Snapchat, and, like, she decided it would be fun. So Eater now has a Snapchat channel. And I saw that you had Snapchat coverage when they went down to Disney. Yeah, exactly. And I couldn't figure out how, (laughs) which is a little embarrassing. The Snapchat thing is impossible. But so what you actually, it's not. Once you realize that all you have, here's here's what you have to just do. You have to follow the people you like, by the way. That's not always obvious how you do that either. But Eater's name is Eater.com. Eater.com, Snapchat name. Um, and you just swipe to when you when you when you load and it shows you this the image of what you it wants you to film yourself doing, you just swipe right and you're into what they call stories. And stories is a more sort of rich storytelling environment where what you create, what you film, lives there for the next 24 hours. So it's the stories still disappear; they just don't disappear immediately. Um, and for brands like Eater, it's a great storytelling medium. It allows us to be looser, a little faster. We're not trying to make it polished and perfect. It's exactly the opposite. It's messy. It's loose. It's at times hilarious. Sometimes it's boring. Um, I but, always think of Snapchat as being something that the kids used to send each other photos of like their feet, their donuts, and what they're having. For yeah, lunch. and that's like that's like that's like that's like being an old who thinks about Twitter as like oh, Twitter is just where people you tell people what you had for lunch. It's did like did you just call me old? Well, we're both old. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, thinking of Snapchat as a sexting tool is, like, just a 2012 take on Snapchat. And, like, if you're not, like, Snapchat also has a section called Discover, where they've curated about a dozen media brands right now, mostly old media brands like Food Network, which is kind of a yawn, and also, I think, kind of actually a really bad fit with the millennial audience that is mostly using Snapchat. So Vox Media, our company, I can't reveal exactly what's happening, but we're working on hopefully becoming a partner with Snapchat on Discover. Well, you talk about the entity of the Eater and, and Racked and Curbs and all those, you know, Vox Media as those entities as being storytelling entities, which they certainly are. You're putting a lot of point of view and perspective and content out there. But the way you yourself talk and part of, I think, what has allowed you to grow such the audience is very much that non-storytelling, data-aggregating, tech-nerd side of things. So... While you have put forth platforms that do tell stories, and they always have, you know, good guys and bad guys and heroes and, you know, triumphs and downfalls, are you yourself really a storyteller? Are you more a a data aggregator button pusher? No, I'm definitely, I mean, (laughs) so I grew up as a journalist, right? Like, and I would say, like, storytelling is the new hot word. I mean, I think a nicer, more straightforward word for it is journalism. Or Um, advertising. I went to a video storytelling um, event and it wound up being advertising people talking about making commercials. <laughs> that sounds like a really great party. No, listen, for me, I had to decide around the age of 30 if I wanted to continue my career as a writer, which is what I did for my 20s. I worked for a series of really tr- crappy trade magazines, but, you know, really honed my writing. And then I discovered blogging around the time I turned 30 and 
my personal blog was one of the first personal blogs in New York City, and that's actually what Curb grew out of. And um, still going. Yeah, I'm Kudos still I'm to kicking, you. It's kicking still, around there. You're still yeah. posting every now well, and again. Well, it's fun. That's what I like to keep one. I like to remember that it's that I can write. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did make that choice around the age of 30, which was that what really what really got me going was conceptualizing entire publications and building them, building out the voice, building out the concept, and then fundamentally building out the team. You know, Eater's a great example. Like the first year of Eater, Ben Leventhal and I wrote the entire site ourselves. Ben wrote about two thirds of it. And you also had full time jobs. You were Exactly. I had a full time job at Gawker. And ben he was, was a VH1. VH1. Exactly. Um, and again, that's back when Eater was maybe one or two on a good day, three posts a day on Eater New York. It was just a different era, right? Yes. But in the sense, like what Ben and I were able to do is really hash out the voice that still comprises the voice of Eater, which is like, you know, it's a little snobby. It's a little like, uh, it can be a little caustic. Um, but hopefully it's also like, you know, celebrating the fact that we all love to eat out and like that's really what it's about. Um, but, you know, the storytelling we used to do back then was very much like bloggy storytelling, which was, you know, you get a little you get a little gossip item and then the next day you have another one on the same story and it kind of like snowballs day after day. Or you don't even need a gossip item. All you need is a hypothesis of a potential gossip item. And you could talk about whether your hypothesis could potentially be We were able to materialized. do that. I, I mean, that's the, kind of thing, that's the kind of thing I would agree that we were able to do in 2005 that we don't really do in 2015. And the reason is pretty simple. Like, there's certain things you can do when your audience is 10,000 people a month that you really shouldn't do when your audience is 10 million people a month. And one example of that would be one of the most controversial things Eater did early in its life was uh, we had a feature called Death Watch. I was hoping <laughs> you would bring that up. So Death Watch was, and it was really Leventhal's creation, so he gets the credit and the, and the blame. Um, but the idea of Death Watch was to like look at a faltering restaurant and predict that it was going to probably close at some point. Um, and the idea there was actually journalistic. It wasn't just being nasty, although the re- industry certainly didn't like it. But the idea was one of our one of our concepts about Eater was we covered the lifespan of a restaurant. We wanted to write about it from the first time it got mentioned at a community board. Plywood. Then a plywood report when it was under construction. Then an opening report. Then we'll go back and interview the team one year in. And then, of course, like, unfortunately, like, the death of it is part of the process. And, like, we weren't trying to, have, like, we weren't trying to poke fun at that. But, like, it was actually just trying to, like, be real about it. Um, but the thing about Death Watch was you don't bet a thousand on it, and like, what was what might have been fun on a website read by ten thousand people becomes like potentially something worse and or like libellous on a website read by millions of people. So, and then are you also predicting something, or are you helping something? Well, that's, you know, that's, walk that's the, the plank a little. That's bit. the question. When, when when we were really small, I felt like there was no way you could possibly argue that Eater Death Watching you, like. Was, self, was a self-fulfilling prophecy. But as we got bigger, like, several restaurant owners made the case to me that, like, in fact, like, Actually, yes. if you do this, you're really going to screw us because it's going to give everyone in the industry, including potential investors or people who might work with us, you know, vendors, like, the idea that we're screwed. And it's like, okay, that's actually fair. Like, I, I, I think that, that that's why we changed our policy. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That was a question that I wanted to ask you because it was something that showed up and then it was something that went away. And growth and how you I, I'm also curious to hear your take on how you've changed your point of view about what content you cover from the perspective of being small and now being big but I think the flip side you're talking about responsibility because of the sheer volume of numbers on the flip side to that when you started you had an idea you guys were hungry it was a brave new world blogging had just started now that you're the kingpin who you know sits up top all these different brands are you more fearless because you feel like you can do anything because you're successful? Are you much more conservative because now you're corporate and you're 
running things differently and you're older and wiser? So the way we've structured it at Vox, I think, is really smart, which is like, it's not my call on a day-to-day basis which stories run on our sites. Each of our sites has an editor-in-chief who's empowered to make that call. And I would say, by and large, they are pretty fearless people, which is great. Like, yeah, I think the further you get up the food chain, the greater the temptation is to tame it, to, like, be more careful, you know? And I think... Or go completely to the other way. Like, I'm king of the mountain now, I... That's not... I don't think... Uh, that kind of preening, like what, sort of like a vice-like style, is not is not my style, and I don't think it's Vox Media's style. Like, it's not that it's a bad thing; it can you can get great journalism out of it. Uh, but there's many different ways to do great journalism, and like what we've been able to do since we came to Vox is invest in things like reviews that we'd never done before because we just couldn't afford it. Um, a features program. We hired Helen Rosner from Sever, who uh, ran Eater's features program, and in her first year, won two James Beard awards for it. So. You know, that's like all credit to the team there, right? Like, it makes me so happy that that's happened for Eater. Um, it's not, I don't get the credit for it, but like, to just see how, to see this great work being done, to see Vox Media, a, an independent digital media company, really just willing to invest in great work. You know, I think that's one of the things that we're, we're not a clickbait company. We're not just here to try and like trick you into reading a list of things. Like, right. we try to do whether it's, you know, on The Verge, our, our technology website, or whether it's on Vox.com, which is our general news website. Um, we, we, my hope is always that you're, you're, we're, we're treating you as, as if you're the intelligent person you are. <laughs> and hopefully we're entertaining in some way, too. And hopefully we're coming with a, with, a, with a great editorial voice. But at the end of the day, we want to be real and we want to be deep. And like we still have a long way to go, which is what makes this job so much fun. Because we're just really still getting started in so many ways in terms of just getting better at doing the real journalism that like a lot of us have the hunger to do. 10 years in and just getting started. We're going to talk more <laughs> about that. We are now halfway into Tech Bytes and need to take a little break to listen to our sponsors and some music. Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. <laughs> Well, if you've just tuned in and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes coming to you from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the heritageradionetwork.org, which is two repurposed shipping containers in the backyard. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and on Tech Bytes, we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, that technology is Eater. And we're talking with founder Lockhart Steele about what's been happening over the past 10 years. And I think it's probably pretty safe to say that when you started Eater and Curbed in your blog network, you started it with the intention to ultimately sell it to somebody, right? I mean, if you're going to start a business, I think you should have some idea of where you might end up like getting out the other side. But no, I wouldn't say I started it with the intention of selling it. I think you started it with the possibility of that somewhere down the road. Um, 
we had some investors, but we, we were we are we were always much more bootstrappy and small than some of the. We never went out and raised tens of million dollars in venture capital. We raised a million and a half dollars in seed financing in 2007 when Eater was already two years old and Curb was three years old, and that let us really build a business. You know, and we were able to, you know, ultimately take Eater out to 27 cities, which you know I still think is incredible and the kind of thing that no one else has done the way that Eater has done it. Um, it's still one of our great competitive advantages having those you know people on the ground in these markets. Um, and now, you know, we're just in a different media environment where to, 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 to build brands, you also want to think about, well, what are we going to do in video, for instance? Or what are we going to do on these other social platforms we were just talking and about? You weren't thinking about video in 2005. No, my God, no. We were bare. I mean, it was a free Google. Got, I think got, Google it, Maps was one of the big innovations back then. That's, that's probably about right. I mean, <laughs> we had, Roberta's was three years away from even existing in 2005. So, I mean, that's how, you know, it, it is a while ago. And yet, like... What what's great about where we are now is that we're at a company where we can start to think about okay we're actually going to make a big investment in video like Eater has a four person video team right now and is hiring currently hiring if you're in the market um, I think three more video people to come on board this fall so you know I, I, I and is there the possibility that you turn on a cable TV network or an over the top network like Hulu at some point in the next year or two and is there an Eater show like. Well, you better believe we're thinking about that, and it's not—it's not pie in the sky at all. Like we have the resources to do that. So, when you envisioned your company, or when you envisioned a little bit the 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 journey and the growth of it back in two thousand five, how much of this did you have in mind, and how much of it? I mean, is I had, based on spontaneous and opportunity and 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 technological advancement. It's <laughs> a good question. Um, I, what I had in mind was that we could grow, you know, blogs. They were very much blogs back in 2005, and that was the era of blogs. Um, and what was fun about blogs that I think we've lost a little bit in the social media age is that part of the fun of Eater was you, you didn't read individual stories. You weren't clicking into a story from your Twitter feed or from your Facebook feed. If you wanted to read Eater, what you had to do is you had to come to the homepage of Eater. <laughs> and back in the day, the URL was eater.curb.com. I mean, we didn't even have, didn't even have eater.com. Um, but what you were able to do as a blogger was you were able to put all your posts together and kind of like create like a series of like, you know, you could do a serious post, then something really wacky and funny. And it was like, you know, the little and the big where we were, we transposed those two a lot. Um, and I think like now we live in this era where like, you know, the majority of traffic is coming in sideways through social, which is fine. Um, but a lot of like the little funny, weird, tidbitty things that we used to like love. Is that personality and personal? Yeah. A little, I mean, because certainly. I think the blog comes from being a, a personal, yeah, I mean, a, a personal journal or diary or communicating on a personal level. Yeah. I mean, it has to be, I always talk about the, the role of obsession in blogs and like the idea is that the only, and this should be for everyone who's still writing for Eater or any of our sites is like, we seek out people who are the obsessed already. You know, if the, the if you're going to come work at Eater, like, you're probably the kind of person who already keeps a Google Doc of all the restaurants you've been to this year and all the restaurants you're planning on going to. You, that's just what you do in your free time. That's your idea of fun, right? Like, that's an Eater editor. You should listen to, I think it's Tech Bytes episode three, when I had Last Minute, last minute Eaten on, the guy who created the algorithm to search open table, open reservations in real time for the top 500 restaurant, and then it pulls it and posts it on Twitter. And he built it for himself, yeah. so he didn't have to make reservations. Yeah, anymore. see, that's great. I mean, that's that's obsession. Like, and that's what we. And he like, has a data blog that goes along with it. Oh, I got to check that out. I, yeah, I, I'm he not crunches familiar. the data with 
transcribed up against the Michelin ratings and the other ratings and the reviews and then how it impacts people standing and, you know, open table and everything. He's like crazy about that one thing. That, I mean, that's what it's, that's, that's what the internet is great at, right? Is like the internet just enables that kind of crazy singular obsession. And like one of the things that I challenge the writers with that eater with these days is like, you know, I want us to make sure that as the site gets bigger and bigger and bigger, which it has, and your audience necessarily gets more mainstream because if 10 million people are reading you, it has to be more mainstream than when 1 million people are reading you, but that we still should be weird. Like Eater has a little bit of weirdness in its DNA. And like weirdness to me is like the kind of things that we used to really key on, you know, uh, like we, I, I like to joke that like, you know, back in the day, if like Steve Hansen, the restaurateur, like if he had an opinion about like forks, Eater really cared about his opinion. Like, it really <laughs> mattered. Like, if he thought a, a, a fork with three times was better than one with four, like, we would be like, that is incredible. Like, what an insight. And we meant it. It was serious. Um, but that's kind of weird, right? You have to, like, you have to, you have to not be afraid to go down that rabbit hole. And you also have to not be afraid that some of your readers are just not going to get it. They're going to be like, I don't get it. But that, that's okay. Like, you have to, to have a voice of your own. You can't try to make everybody like it or everybody get it. One of the things about the blogs, which is very different from media today, is that you really experience the blogs if you were following them or you had an RSS feed. You were experiencing them in real time. And part of the power of the blogs, certainly of Eater, was being able to post something before other media, before other people, before people knew. But also, when you talk about looking at it, the succession of reading things in sequential order as they're happening in time. And today with media, you don't know when something was written. It comes across from social media or here or there. You think it's an article that's timely. You find out it was written two years ago. No, that's exactly right. I mean, like if we put a, if we put a breaking news story from Eater on Facebook right now, you might get it resurfaced at the top of your feed algorithmically tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. I mean, that's Facebook's call, not our call, or that's the algorithm's right. call. But in any case, you're exactly right. Like, that, that is lost a little bit, um, and it changes what we do. Are there anything, any really big surprises that you had over the last 10 years, something that you totally didn't see coming? Well, I just, I mean, when, when I started Eater with Ben, like, the funny thing is that we were both complete outsiders to the restaurant industry. We didn't know the chefs. We didn't know anybody, actually. Like... And we didn't know anything about food, really. Like, we were total amateurs. And so we had to think about, you know, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to do reviews? Like, no, we're not reviewers. Like, and we're not, like, you know, that's not what we want to do. Um, And we really couldn't critique the food anyway. I I can't tell you if a dish has too much or not enough cilantro. Like, that's not my gig. (laughs) But what Ben and I both loved was we loved, like, the act of eating out. Like, we loved going into a room like Balthazar. The theater, the entertainment. And you're just like, this is, that's exactly what it is. It's like... This is New York City. There, the beautiful people are all around you. Over in that corner, there's the crazy celebrity from, you know, the new hot show. But it's really about like that. And then the food is great or it's not. And like, but it's about the whole experience of dining out. And that's where Eater is always coming from is like, is it a great experience? And I think like what has surprised me is like that, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of the chefs and I've gotten to know a lot of people in the industry and all of that. Like, but I haven't lost any of the magic of like that experience of dining out. And I think you find it in the, in the most incredible of places. When I was on this road trip in, in North Carolina in May, we took a trip. We took, Bill took us 45 minutes into the hills outside of Asheville to this obscure little town that must have been population 300. 
And we went to this restaurant that had like a little outdoor setup right literally next to railroad tracks where like freight trains were rolling by. And we had an incredible mind blowing meal. Like, and it's like, that's what it's about is like, that's what, that's, that's why we eat out. That's why we seek out these restaurants. It absolutely is. the experience. And ultimately, oftentimes the food is only a small percentage of that because it's the totality of getting there, the anticipation, the people. I guess if, the other, if I had to say one more surprise from the last mm-hmm. 10 years, it's that I think Eater got to Eater had a small role to play in creating this wave, but certainly got to ride the wave. And that is that, you know, I don't think anyone could have expected that food pop culture would become so mainstream. No. It was just relatively obscure when we started. And, you know, it's not that people didn't care about food. You know, Anthony Bourdain's book had come out in the year 2000. But like, you know, we hadn't even you, the rise of the David Changs of the world hadn't happened yet. And the idea that a, a David Chang would not just be known in the food world, but would be known essentially as a, a cultural celebrity you cover know, a time a, magazine. across the spectrum. Exactly. Yep. You know, that Adria is, cover a time magazine. A, that, is a, that is an incredible change that I certainly didn't predict 10 years ago. And I, I don't think anybody predicted. I would agree with that. Is there anything that you regret having published or a missed opportunity or something I mean, we, you wish you hadn't done? Are there any ones you wish you go back and not hit publish? That's a good question. I, I don't think I could name one off the top of my head that really I have great regret over, which I think is good. It shows that we've never like, I'm, I'm going to have to knock on wood here, never had like a truly epic mishap of you know editorial variety. But, you know, there's also like, there's so many times, you know, there's times where you hold back on a story because you know, you, you don't know all the details or, you know, we've gotten lied to by people in the industry. And, you know, there's times where I, I wish we'd been bolder. Um, I think that it's, it's especially as, you know, we got to know people better. You have a bit more of a tendency to hold back. Um, and one of the things that we've, that we did and we still do is, you know, we will run the news the way we, that comes across. And we've had chefs who I've had chefs call me furious and be like, I thought we were friends. And it's like, dude, like, I like you as a person, but, like, I'm doing my job and you're doing right. yours. And, exactly. like, my job is to report. We, if we find out the location of your new restaurant and you want that to be a secret until you announce it, like, well, too Don't go to the community bad. board and put right. it in or the like, public record. <laughs> or don't give, don't, don't give one of our investors a business plan to your new restaurant. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, it's, it's, but, but I think, like, what's happened, and I think it's good, is that Eater went through the different stages of, like, at first we were ignored, and then after about a year, I think people started reading it. And you sort of go through this trough of like everyone being like, oh, Eater is terrible. It's gossipy. It's, this is like page six. Um, but I think what's happened is like as we've matured and, and grown, you know, we've proven ourselves, I think, as good actors in the sense that we do good journalism. We're not out to just, you know, to, to, to ruin people's lives. We're here to, to tell these stories. And, you know, I think what's happened is that, you know, there's still some chefs. I won't name them, but there's still some chefs who I know hate Eater. Um, and won't talk to us. Um, there's one prominent chef who um, we ask him for comment. He always replies the same way. He says, I don't comment to tabloids. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. But I think like, you know, hey, the, this, is a, this is a site now that, you know, we won three James Beard Awards last year. And, you know, it's pretty clear that the, the, the level of the work we're doing is as good, if not better than any in the industry. And like I said, with the investment that Vox Media is going to be able to make in Eater over the next few years... You know, whereas everyone else is paring back their food coverage, like we're going to be stepping it forward. Right. Well, you are a food entity, so that's great. So I usually ask people what their piece of advice is for our listeners. If someone is writing online somewhere and is looking to expand that platform and hopefully sell for reportedly 20 or 30 million dollars <laughs> in 10 years, what's your advice to somebody for building a platform and an audience? 
I mean, what I said earlier, it's about obsession, like treat, like trust your own obsession and like try to get people on board with it. I mean, that's what we did at Eater. That's what I did at Curbed in the, in the sort of neighborhood and real estate space. But it's because I actually loved those things like Curbed in particular, my, my first baby, it was like a real love for the built environment and neighborhoods of New York City. And because I loved it so much, it made toiling overtime and late at night and early in the morning, it made it, you know, it made it possible. So go for the love. Follow your love. There you go. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for coming out to Roberta's on this 90-degree sweltering New York City summer day. I want to give a special thanks to our boys in the booth who didn't get to talk today, Jack Inslee, our engineer and the station's executive producer, and Declan, our associate producer. They are the ones who really do the work to turn this into a podcast and live radio. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. This is Tech Bytes. If you liked it, come back next week at 1 o'clock on Monday. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.